0: I'll read the bold section if you'll follow along after me in the non-bold. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. as many,
1: my feet have almost stumbled. My steps have merely slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the austerity of the wicked.
0: They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High?
1: All in vain have I <laughs> kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. But when I thought how to understand this,
0: it seemed to me a of until I went until into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Who have I lie heaven, but he you? And there is, there, there is nothing on earth, that, on earth that, that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be in your God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, and I am all in Amen. If you want to remain standing and turn to hymn number 61, we'll sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. That to say we don't have sin is to only prove our sinfulness. To say that we have no sin, that we don't struggle with pride or envy or strife or anger is only to show ourselves to be a liar and to call God a liar. And so why we do this every week is to honestly and truthfully come before the Lord, see the ways that we have fallen short, and to confess our sin to Him, knowing that He's able to pardon. So um, let's take a moment to confess our sins individually before the Lord in silence. confession Almighty Father you are our refuge and strong tower great is your faithfulness in all the earth and yet when we see how faithful you are we see our unfaithfulness we see the wicked prosper and are tempted to follow after them we see our own sin and are tempted to deceive ourselves and sweep it under the rug. But as we come now to worship you, show us the greatness of our sin and weakness and our great need for a Savior. Our flesh and our hearts may fail, but you are our strength and portion forever. Forgive us, Lord, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to put our hope in you. Going to turn to him. 2:16. We'll sing, "Christ the Solid Rock." And not just that, but that we can have assurance of our salvation. We read these words in 1 John 4. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son. To be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means wrath atoning sacrifice. That God in the person of Christ has made a way, has atoned for our sins. And we have great assurance this morning for all those that are putting their faith in the Son. And I'm reminded this week that as the turmoil of our lives, wages, wages, There's nothing better that we can do than to come to the Lord in prayer. So let's do that this morning. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, um, as we just sang for many of us this morning, all around our soul gives way. That the sands and soils of life perish. They fall to the side and if we build our house on the sand the winds and the waves of life will blow us over. But as we sang we have a great hope, a great assurance that if our house is built on the rock of Christ we have a sure and steadfast foundation. A solid rock a cornerstone that cannot be moved. And though all around our soul gives way, He is all our hope and stay. This morning we lift up the burdens and things that we come to you this morning with that we bear. And as Paul Bunyan wrote in the Pilgrim's Progress, that Christian bears a burden, a massive burden on our backs. And this morning we come to you that, asking that you would take this burden off, that it is through the way, through Christ, that our burdens are made light, through Christ who is meek and mild, our path is made easy, our burden light. So this morning we come to you confessing our sin, but confessing Christ and his great means of saving sinners. We come to you this morning, not of our own volition, but um, coming, confessing Christ, praying that you would bound up, bind up our weak knees, and that we would come to you this morning with great hope, that you who promise are faithful, and that you will surely do it. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. We come to this part where we confess our faith. I think of it as a reminder that we're prone to forget these simple truths of the faith. And this is actually the same question we asked last week. And we'll see the continuation of it this week in our passage. And the question is so simple that we can often trip trip over it. We can add works to it. We can redefine it into faithfulness. But the question is simple. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Will you read with me the answer? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered to us in the Gospel. Amen. You can be seated. have seen it. Stone Cold Steve Austin was famous for holding up the poster of John 316. Um, if you remember that, uh, Tim Tebow, <laughs> uh, he had those black marks under his eyes when he played football and he'd write John 316 on there. Maybe you've gone down a highway in rural Illinois and seen it on a barn or something. If you've ever been blessed enough had the privilege of eating that In-N-Out burger. Anybody in here ate an In-N-Out? At the bottom of their, their soda cups, they have John 3.16 written on there. So this verse is everywhere. It's pervasive. It's almost has its own subculture, if you will. One of the most popular Bible passages to uh, make it into the popular scene. And really, at its core, it's a summary of the Gospel. It's a summary of what Christ has done what God has done for sinners. A so one-verse summary of the good news of Christ. And there's a couple of these in the Bible. You know some of my favorite ones, Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. 1 Peter 3, 18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. And so there's, there's many of these one-sentence summaries of the gospel of of what God has done for sinners, but this one, in some respects, is different. It's taken a hold of us as a culture, as the world at large, mostly just in America. Um, But there's something different about it, that it not only speaks about what Christ has done, but the love of God, the love of God. And I think that... Has led people to connect with this verse, even just at a popular level. Or even unbelievers might know this passage, have it memorized, could repeat it to you if you ask them. And I think something about that, this idea that God is a God of love, connects with us as humans, as people. And what we'll see today as we study this passage is that this love is not a superficial love, it's not a love as the world might understand love. Love is just this feeling, but we'll see the depths and the riches of what it is, and hopefully we can look at this passage with fresh eyes, with eyes that are tuned to see what's really here, because we can repeat it, we become so familiar with it that it loses its meaning or it's kind of dull or we become callous to it, but hopefully today we'll see the greatness of the love of God, and also the great promise of God in the gospel of Christ. So if you want to look at me, look with, me. No, look at me, look at, <laughs> look at with me, verse 16 in John chapter 3, uh, I'll read um, the verse and then I'll pray for us. This is the word of the Lord. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning in many ways distracted, if we're honest, distracted with life and the things that are going on in our lives. And we pray this morning that you would help us to focus, to, to tune in to these passages, to tune into these words that your holy revelation that you've given us, so that we might have a life, so that we might know the Lord Jesus Christ and be changed. And this morning we pray that you would help us to see the depths of your word, to see the depths of your love and your great promises. And that we would be changed, that we would not leave this place the same way that we came, and that we would have a greater sense of your love and faithfulness, and a greater sense of our need for you in every moment of every day. All these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So, part of the downside to having this verse be so pervasive is it's often just cited on its own, right? It's just John 3.16, right? People go look up that verse, and they read it, and they miss. They miss what comes before, they miss what has come after, and that's to the detriment of this verse, that as with any passage, we can't just pull a verse out of context and make it mean whatever we want to mean, even though in a lot of ways this verse can stand on itself, that context is important to understanding any verse, and if you've been with us through this study of John, this is really a continuation of what we've seen in John's Gospel, that beginning all the way back in chapter 2 at the end, there's been this contrast between true faith and false faith, true belief and false belief, that there's people that are believing in Christ, but their belief is not in Him and who He is and what He came to do, but it's on what He can do for them, how He can serve them, it's really a selfish faith. And so we saw an example of this in Nicodemus. He comes to the Lord. He realizes that Jesus is a great teacher, that he's come from God, that he can do many signs. But Jesus says, something needs to be done to you in order to understand really what's going on, who I am and what I came to do. And he tells him about the new birth, about this spirit that will come and make him born from above. And today... We'll see a continuation of this, that what we're going to see in John 3.16 is really the grounds of this new birth. Why is there a new birth? Why can someone be born again? It's because of the love of God and the great promise of God in the gospel. So we'll look at five things today if you want to write these down, if you, have, if you like to do that. We'll look at five things. We'll break it up into the five sort of clauses or statements in John 3.16. John 3, we'll see these five things. First, the divine love of God, the sacrificial gift of God, the great promise of God, the sovereign mercy of God, and the manifold grace of God. And those will be broken up respectively. So first we'll look at the divine love of God in this first statement, famous statement. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that whatever we can say about this, we can say that God has a plan of redemption. God so loved the world that the scriptures and why we study them is because they are God's revelation to us about redemption, about how we can be saved. And here we get to peek behind the veil, behind the curtain, that all of this is this plan of redemption, this great salvation, is because of the love of God, that we see the greatness of God's love for his people. That John 3.16, we see the great cause of God's plan to redeem sinners, that it's not founded in us but it's in God, that it is the divine love of God that has brought about this means of redemption, this plan of salvation. And I think we can be tempted to think like this, that Christ had to come so that God would love us, right? We can be tempted to think like that in our head. Christ had to come so that God would love us. But actually, the opposite is true. The Son was not sent to love us, but because God loved us. That's what we see in this passage. The theologian A.W. Pink says this, The death of Christ was the supreme demonstration of God's love, not the cause of it. That Christ didn't come, that God didn't send His Son to love us, but because He loved us. We read in Romans 5.8, God shows His love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That it's not because we were lovely, but because God loved us. We read this morning in 1 John 4 9. In this is love, not that God loved us. Sorry, not that we love God, but that God loved us. 1 John 4.19, these seven famous words. We love because he first loved us. That this is the divine initiative. That God is the one that loves, and that is why he has sent his son. And we see that this love is not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. So we see in verse 16, that first part, for God so loved the world, that this is not just for the Jewish people, but this love is for the world. And we get this context. It's not just talking about the world in terms of creation, right? God did not love the trees and the animals and the birds, and that's why he sent his son. No, he's saying that God so loved the world, both Jews and Gentiles. And the prologue to John's gospel, we read about this, that God has sent his son into the world, and the world didn't know him. He sent his son into his own people, and his own people did not receive him. In John Chapter 1 also we read John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. So this divine love of God is shown in this, that God loved the world. It could also be translated, God loved in this way. God loved in this way. And the answer is, is in what way? The question that comes up is, God loved in what way? And that leads us to our second point, the sacrificial gift of God. The sacrificial gift of God, that God loved the world, both Jew and Gentile, in this way, that He gave His only Son. That He gave His only Son. That God did not spare His best. He wasn't stingy. He wasn't withholding. He did not spare His best. He gave his only, his unique son. That just as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, just as Abraham was called to sacrifice his only son, his beloved son, the son of promise, so God did not spare his own son. That before the ages began, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, had a plan of redemption. We call this the covenant of redemption. You can read about this in places like Psalm 89, John 17, that this plan of redemption is that the Father would send the Son to take on human flesh, human nature, to fulfill the law perfectly, to secure perfect redemption, to stand in the place of sinners by the power of the Holy Spirit, offer Himself as a perfect sacrifice, that God would give His only Son. And we have to understand this important part, that God did not have to do this. That God did not have to do this. That the Son of God taking on human nature was a mercy, it was a grace. That, think about this, the second person of the triune God took on flesh, took on a human nature, nerve endings, could feel pain according to his human nature. That the giving of the Son was not just a gift that didn't cost anything. It was costly. That the Son of God took on flesh, felt the pain, felt the whip of the, of the whip, felt the pain of the cross so that we might have life. And that this gift of God is really the gift of Himself. That when God gave His only Son, He is giving His people Himself. Giving himself as the gift. And so we see that this is the reason and the grounds of this has a purpose. And that's our third point this morning that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This great promise of God that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That as we've said, God has made a way of salvation, that what we're reading here is the grounds and promise of God, that God had love for His people, that He sent His only Son, so that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And this statement here, whoever believes in Him, has both a universal element and an exclusive element to it. And we can't have one without the other, in a sense. So when I say universal, I don't mean universalism, which is the belief that everyone will be saved. This is heresy. This was believed by some people in the early church that God will save everybody, that faith isn't really important, that you don't really need to believe in God, that God will just save everyone, regardless of if they accept the gospel or not. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I mean by universal is the free offer of the gospel, the free offer of the gospel, this great call of the gospel, that there's no preconditions to hearing the gospel. There was actually a controversy in the 1700s and 1800s where people were saying, well, you can't preach the gospel to someone unless they've repented enough. You can't Bring them the good news unless they've cleaned their life up enough. And then if you see that they're cleaning their life up, then you can offer them the grace of the gospel. Now, the gospel is for all. The free call of the gospel. That anyone who would believe would be saved. That anyone who would believe would be saved. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That all who would believe in the Son will be saved. This is the universal, the free call of the gospel. But there's also in this an exclusiveness to this statement, a, a particularity to this statement. What do I mean by that? There's conditions, right? We're not universalists. It's whoever believes in Him. It can literally be translated, all the believing ones or everyone believing. That this verse can sometimes be twisted to say, people aren't that bad, that God sent his son to make salvation possible. That he made it possible, and God's just kind of waiting in heaven to see if anybody will accept it. But it's actually the opposite. That God did not send his son to make salvation possible, but to make it certain. To make it sure that all the believing ones, everyone who believes, will be saved. This is the love of God. This is the giving of the gift of the Son. That this is the confidence that believers have. That if our faith is in God and in His Son, we will be saved. That God loved His people in this way, that He sent His only begotten Son. That all who believe, all the believing ones, might not perish, but have eternal life. That no person that comes to the Son in repentance and faith, genuinely, will perish, but will have eternal life. And this belief, this faith, this trust, is in Christ alone. It's, notice, it's beliefs in Him It's not belief in Allah, it's not belief in Buddha, or Joseph Smith, or Mormonism, or Buddha, or Mary, or any of these things, or even ourselves. It's whoever believes in Him, that God has provided one way of salvation. In Acts we read, there is one name under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved, and that is the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. What does Jesus go on to say later in the Gospel of John? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That this is the great promise of God that Christ is the object of our faith. As we talked about last week, just as the serpent is lifted up on the pole, so in the same way the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. May receive and rest upon him alone for salvation. This is the great promise of God. And in these next two parts we see both the mercy and the grace of God. First we'll look at the sovereign mercy of God. It says, all who believe in him should not perish. Should not perish. And as we know in Romans, the wages of sin is death. The wages, What we've earned. <laughs> That's kind of an interesting way to think about it. The wages of our sin is death. What we've earned from our sinning is death, and nothing less. Physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. As we read in verse 18 here, it says, There's condemnation that remains on us. Later in verse 36, it'll say that... The wrath of God remains on him. That this idea of perishing, of condemnation, of the wrath of God remaining on him is to say that sin is not taken lightly by God. That it's cosmic treason. And it's hard for us to think about this at a human level. Sometimes we compare it to human terms, right? You know, if you speak badly about someone, I can just forgive them, right? I can just... Sweep it under the rug. But if you think about it from a human level, if you were to speak badly about a cop or a judge or the president, right, You every time you're escalating to a higher and higher level, a higher level of, the, of offense. So if you didn't just speak badly about one of those people but did something to harm them, did something to hurt them, if you hurt the president, the penalty is going to be much greater than... An average citizen. And in the same way, God, the ruler of the universe, our sin against Him is not to be taken lightly. It is it's cosmic treason. It's the breaking of God's law, of God's commandments, of God's covenant. And that just as Adam and Eve broke the covenant in the garden, we can do the same thing with our own sin, right? We can hide it, we can try to cover it up, as we talked about this morning. But here we see the sovereign mercy of God. What is mercy? Mercy is the withholding of punishment. That even though our sin deserved punishment, deserved wrath, deserved condemnation, as we read in the book of Romans, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That we've been saved by God from His wrath. That this is the great mercy of God, that even though we deserved punishment, the sovereign mercy of God in Christ says those who believe in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And here we see the great grace of God that it's not just that we don't perish because of our sin but we are given a gift of eternal life. It's not just that our bank accounts were negative and they were brought to zero, but we're given eternal life. We're giving... Thankful. We're giving millions of dollars, if you want to keep that analogy going. That It's not just that we're not perishing, but we're given eternal life. And eternal life... We can kind of think of it as just a progression of years. Life, unending life, eternal. But it's not just a progression of years, but a quality, a type of life, as some theologians have said. That eternal life is not just a future reality for believers, but it's a current reality, a present one. He'll later go on to say, if you want to look at verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has... Eternal life. It's not just a future tense, but a present tense. That the believer in Christ now has eternal life. And I think that we can sometimes think about this idea of, ter- of eternal life in the wrong way. We can even sometimes think that this idea of eternal life is only in the Gospels, it just came about in the New Testament. This idea of eternal life with God is only in the New Covenant. But if we look back at the garden, we can see that this eternal life was actually offered to Adam in the Tree of Life. The Tree of Life was a picture of life eternal, that even though Adam was perfect in the garden, he had no sin. He still did not have eternal life, unchanging life, glory. He was still able to sin. And he was supposed to work. He was supposed to enter God's rest. He was supposed to obey God perfectly, but he failed. He did not eat of the tree of life. He ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He failed. And that's what makes what Christ did so much more beautiful, that he came And did what Adam failed to do. That Adam was supposed to do all these things and he failed. But Christ has come as the second and the better Adam. He is the unique son of God. The only son of God. He obeyed perfectly. He entered God's rest. He is the one that allows us, he makes us able to eat from the tree of life. He gives us the gift of eternal life. That all who believe in him should not perish but have eternal life, that this is the gift of God. It's not something we can earn. It's a gift. It's something that we receive, as we read this morning. So as we close, two things to consider and think about from this passage, John 3.16. First, we'll look at the great love of God in the Gospel. That here we see not only the great justice of God, but the great mercy of God. The great mercy of God. That it is God who loved us. And it is the love of God that sent the Son of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, to bring this new birth to the people of God that produces faith and love for God in us. This is the love of God. That God is so loving that we did not deserve this. He did not have to do this. But in the love of God, for His own glory, He sent His Son to love us in this way. And as we read, we love because He first loved us. And this is the great love of God in the Gospel. And we need to take a moment to consider that, to ponder that, to reflect on that, And allow it to change us. Because we're Americans, right? We're entitled. We're entitled to our comfort. Entitled to so much of life. We take so much for granted. I was talking to my wife this week about common grace, right? We have so many blessings. We're in an air-conditioned building, for crying out loud. (laughs) We have so many things that, even just common things that God has given us. And so often we feel entitled, like we deserve them like it's our right. And yet, we see in this passage that we deserve none of it, but that God has given it to us out of his free love and grace. And lastly, we'll see this great promise of God in the Gospel, that all who believe will be saved. That all who believe will be saved. That on the cross, God gave his only Son. That God gave His only Son. That on the cross, this is what Luther would call the great exchange. The great exchange. Or what theologians would later call double imputation. Whereby our sin is placed on Christ and His righteousness is given to us. A double imputation. The great exchange. The exchange that to us doesn't make any sense. Right? Right? But this is the love of God. This is the great promise of God. That on the cross, our sin was placed on Him. The wrath, atoning sacrifice. That He bore the punishment, the curse that we deserved. As the bronze serpent representing sin was lifted up, so the Son of Man was lifted up. And as we read in Isaiah last week, our iniquity was laid on Him. Our sin placed on Him. In the book of Leviticus, there's this great day of atonement where there was these two sacrifices offered. One of them was a goat whereby the people would come and place their hands on the goat and this was a representation of them placing their sin on that goat. And they would lead the goat out into the wilderness, out into destruction, out into nothingness. And this is what Christ did on the cross, part of what he did. Our sin was placed on him. Just as that goat received the sins of the people representationally, so Christ did so actually. But the second part of what happened on that day was that a perfect spotless sacrifice was sacrificed. The blood was spilled so that the people would be counted righteous. And this is the second part of what Christ did. That not only was our sin placed on Him, but the perfect life, death, and obedience of Christ was given to us by faith. We call this the alone instrument of our salvation, of our justification. That it's by faith we are united to Christ and all His benefits. That His perfect life, death, obedience is given to us, is credited to our account, that we are made right, not by our works, not even by Christ doing 99% and us doing the last one, but by the pure and spotless obedience of Christ, the Lamb of God. And so as we come to the end of the scriptures, we see this great picture of the end, of what Christ brought us to, where there'll be no more sin, there'll be no more suffering, And we actually see the tree of life come up again. For those that have conquered, for those that have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, that Christ has earned it. He has given us access to Himself, (laughs) the tree of life. That by eating and drinking of Him, we have eternal life. There will be no more sin, no more strife, no more suffering. And in our present state, it's difficult to see that. It's difficult to see how that could be possible. Right? If we're honest with ourselves, we struggle in many ways. We struggle with our sin. We struggle with the world around us, turmoil, trials, tribulations. But in a sense, we can look forward to that great day where we will eat of the tree of life, eternal life, forever, and we will brought, be brought to a state that was better than Adam. That Adam... He could have sinned. He did sin. But Christ has brought us to a place that's better than that, where we cannot sin, we cannot fall. And so this morning, may we look to Christ, may we look to Him, and may we trust in Him alone for salvation, that He is a good Savior, that we have confidence in His sacrifice, that all who believe in Him, all the believing ones, will not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for this great gospel promise, this great hope that we have, that all who believe in you will not perish. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that at the end of Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not life, not death, not angels, nor demons, nor rulers, nor powers, nor principality, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ. This morning, may that be an anchor for our souls, that Christ has done what we could not that He secured our redemption. He's gone to heaven through the veil, through the earthly and heavenly temple to secure what we could not, eternal Sabbath rest. And we look forward to that day. And we remember that today on this day of rest, that we experience this rest in part now. And we look forward to our heavenly, eternal rest where we will dwell with God and His people forever. And where we will worship You with unceasing praise. This morning, help us to look to You, to look to Christ, and to have life. That we might see that Christ is a good Savior And that by believing we might have life in his name. Help us this morning to do that. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. We come now to the Lord's Supper, where we're given this great visible picture of what God has done for us. That God has sent his only son, his body broken, his blood shed, so that ours might be spared. And we're reminded that we don't only look back to Christ's death in the past, but we presently proclaim His death and we look forward to the day that He comes again where we will eat and drink with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. That this is a means of grace that God has given us and it's not magic, but it's to spiritually feed and nourish our souls. So May we come this morning confessing our sin, seeing the ways that we've fallen short, and may we come rejoicing, knowing that He has done it, that the gospel is all of grace, and may we come this morning recognizing that. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank You for this Lord's Supper that You've given us. Help us, Lord, in our weakness and our sin to Eat and drink by faith, remembering what you've done for us and resting in you alone for salvation. Help us to think of the ways that we have failed, the ways that we have broken your law this week. But also help us to come knowing that you've made a way of salvation. That all those who look to the sun, lifted up on the pole, would be saved. And have eternal life. May our gaze be there this morning. May we look to Christ and live. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. If you want to form a line, and we'll grab the elements and partake together. this bread that we break just as it nourishes our physical bodies we're reminded of Christ's body that nourishes us spiritually that we're to take the bread, we're to remember and believe believe in Him that He is the perfect sacrifice and that when we do that, when we believe in Him, we have complete forgiveness for all of our sins In the same way we take the cup, the cup of wine, the cup of life that represents the new covenant, that's not like the old, that is new, that is better, that has better promises, that all who drink and eat by faith have forgiveness through Christ's blood for all of their sins. Amen. If you want to stand now and turn to hymn number 208, we'll sing There is a Fountain. become rich. And we are rich this morning, not in material money, but um, in redemption, in the benefits that you have won for us. And so this morning, we give a portion of our financial means back to you, so that we might not worship money, so that we might not worship the things of this earth, but that we might worship you. Help us this morning to do that for your glory and our joy. We pray all these things in your son's name.